Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 24, Atonement by Ian McEwan. You saw him then? Yes, I saw him. Just as you see me? I know it was him. You know it was him? Well, you saw him? Yes. I did, I saw him. With your own eyes? Yes. I saw him. I saw him with my own eyes. and I found the two of them down by the lake. You didn't see anyone else? I wouldn't necessarily believe everything Barney tells you. She's rather fanciful. When they were looking, I went up to my dad's. I did, honest. Why was that? To tell them all about it. I know I shouldn't have opened it. No, you should not. But at least you've done the right thing now. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we've both read and determine whether it's worthy of its reputation, whether it has a good one or a bad one. So I am the lead on this episode, and with me, as always, is the turkey to my pumpkin pie. It's Tom Panneries. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. My voice is going to be a little wonky. It's not because I'm sick, but I went to Bush Gardens Hollow Scream, and usually whenever I go to a theme park, I just break my voice because I just have a lot of fun. So this will be an interesting record, but it sounds better than it has sometimes in the past. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, um, I apologized on i think the one of the facebook posts or something but um there was a technical issue on my end where i sounded like 50 feet away and i hopefully um it's worked itself out 
this time around because before we went on, I talked to the Skype lady and did my test call and listened to the recording that MP3 Skype recorder had done. And it sounded clear and it sounded right at the mic. So my fingers are crossed. But <laughs> Yeah, and it sounds clear on my end. And so since cool. I'm recording this one, hopefully that's a good indication that we've got good sound quality right now. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, we are doing atonement this month. And as I was <laughs> reading it, and I remembered it pretty well, but I was also thinking, yikes, you know, what a pretty good novel to read given all of the stuff that's going on with the Me Too movement and just sexual harassment and assault more often coming to light because that's very much at the center of this novel. So I didn't intend to pick something that was dealing with those sorts of issues, but I think that it's good that we might actually talk about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, it it was, it, it actually made, when we were getting through it, and I know you'll get into the plot summary and synopsis to talk about the specific thing about that, but um, as we were going through the last couple of months worth of things and people debating once again the nature of harassment and rape and, and things very very serious issues um i i was reading this so it, it did make me it did make me think of it so uh, uh even if it was coincidental it was a, a good pick for that regard thank you thank you uh, so what is your history with this book this is my history of this book i've never read <laughs> yeah. before um if you heard me at the end of the last episode i believe i knew of the movie but i wasn't even sure who was in the movie because i was like i was like is that a meryl street movie and you were like no it's kira knightley so i knew it was a movie but no i, I had not i had was not familiar with the book at all so this is my first time reading the book and yeah i think my history really began with the film uh the, the little girl who well, the person who plays Bryony is Saoirse Ronan, mm -hmm. who, and it's awesome to just watch movies she's in now and think back to this. So, I mean, she's someone who's been in Brooklyn. She was in Hana. Uh, there are so many that she's been in, and she's just really. Lady Bird. Yes, Lady. Oh, such a good film. So, all of these great. I, she's just really matured, but she's been, I feel like, a good actress throughout. And I think I remember seeing this with my mom and unless I saw it in college. But then it was also on my Rory Gilmore's reading list and so I ended up actually reading it afterwards, I think, which often I don't do. And to a certain extent, well, you're going to be ruined either way because the big sort of stomach clencher happens at the end. And even in the book, it's about, I mean, there's maybe 20 to 30 pages left when you realize what was actually happening, like the sort of the interwoven narrative. But yeah, so all that to say that I've, I enjoyed reading it once I had seen the film. I've seen the film several times, I actually own it on DVD. I was trying to find time to watch it, but never got to it. So maybe I'll watch it sometime after this. But yeah, something that I, even though it's not the most uplifting novel, and I do like happy endings, I, it's something that I enjoy and it wasn't a task for me to go back to and read and I was happy to read it again. Cool. 
So Ian McEwan, which I, I do wonder about because I know that there's another book. They just made a – actually, uh, Saoirse Ronan was in it. I think it's on Cecil Beach or something like that, and that was another. I've not read hmm. it, and the movie I think is on Redbox. I don't think I want to see it because it seems like like a downer. But I don't know if all of his novels are downers. But just to talk about him a little bit, he is a uh, a son of a military officer. And he ended up growing up in Asia, Germany, and North Africa. But he returned to England to study English at Sussex University. And then after completing his undergraduate degree, he enrolled in a creative writing master's program. And he first published his first collection of short stories, which were entitled First Love, Last Rites. And he was given the Somerset Maughan Award because of those. And he really, I think, has gained most of his acclaim from this particular novel, which was written in 2001, Atonement. And he's gone on since then to write, I think, like five more novels and a libretto. It said one libretto and five novels. Oh, see, it was, yeah, a libretto. There you go. So he's, yeah, continuing to write. and But again, Atonement is what he is most well known for. Well, I guess I'll just go into the plot synopsis from there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. No, no, I was just thinking about uh, talking about this novel. Okay. Bryony Tallis is a literary, self-important 13-year-old who lives in an English country estate in 1935. Her cousins, 15-year-old Lola Quincy and 9-year-old twins Jackson and Perot Quincy, are coming to stay with the Tallises because of their parents because their parents are embroiled in a divorce. Meanwhile, Bryony's older sister Cecilia holds unresolved romantic feelings for Robbie Turner, the Tallis's gardener. Robbie's romantic feelings for Cecilia, meanwhile, are passionately resolved. Thanks to the Tallis's funding, Robbie studies with Cecilia at Cambridge and plans to become a doctor. From a window of the estate, Bryony witnesses the two of them accidentally break a family heirloom vase in front of a fountain. When Cecilia removes her clothes in front of Robbie to retrieve the shards from the fountain, Bryony starts to think Robbie is a threat to her sister. Later, Robbie gives Bryony a letter of apology to give to Cecilia, but accidentally hands her a vulgar draft instead. Bryony reads the letter and becomes convinced Robbie is a menace. When Robbie realizes his error, he goes to Cecilia to apologize, but this apology turns to passionate lovemaking in the family library. Bryony, however, enters the room and interrupts, further cementing her resentment and suspicion of Robbie. The family gathers for a dinner to commemorate the visit of Leon, the oldest Talis child. He has brought a friend, Paul Marshall, with him. Paul is the heir to a chocolate fortune. The twins leave the dinner table and leave a letter behind explaining they have run away from the house because they miss their parents. The guests assemble search parties to look for the boys on the grounds. Bryony, searching alone, finds Lola being raped in a remote part of the estate. The assailant runs away before Bryony can identify him, but as she consoles Lola, she convinces both Lola and herself that she saw Robbie commit the crime. Bryony leads Lola back to the house and delivers her story to all the adults present. Policemen arrive and Bryony testifies that she saw Robbie commit the crime. After many hours, Robbie returns to the house with the twins. He had been searching for them alone all night. When he gets back, he is taken into police custody. 
Part two resumes after Robbie has served three and a half years in prison for Lola's assault. During that time, he has been in constant correspondence with Cecilia, even though she has not been allowed to visit him in person. She's cut ties with her family and started a career as a nurse. Cecilia's latest letter informs Robbie that Bryony has contacted her in the hopes of retracting the false testimony she made years earlier. The outbreak of World War II allows Robbie to end his sentence by enlisting in the army. He goes to fight in France. When part two begins, he must walk to the coast with his comrades, Corporal Nettle and Corporal Mace, in order to evacuate with the British forces. And this was at Dunkirk, which I was thinking, oh, since that movie came out, I had a better idea Mm -hmm. of where that was. During this walk, the men behold disturbing carnage, and despite having a painful shrapnel wound, Robbie makes it to the coast and is evacuated. Part three focuses on Bryony, who has foregone college to work as a nurse during the war. Work is demanding, and she is intimidated by her overseer, Nurse Drummond. An influx of injured men from the French evacuation arrives to the hospital, and the harrowing experience of treating them causes Bryony to mature. In her rare free time, Bryony writes stories, which she submits to magazines unsuccessfully. A letter from her father informs Bryony that Paul and Lola are to be married. She attends their wedding and afterwards pays a visit to Cecilia. Unexpectedly, Robbie is present as well. The atmosphere is tense, but Bryony agrees to take the steps necessary to alert her family and the relevant legal authorities of her change in testimony. Cecilia and Robbie see Bryony off, and Bryony understands that after she finishes the task she has agreed to, she must begin an in-depth process of atonement. The book's epilogue reveals that this atonement process was to write the preceding novel itself. So that's the gut, the, the, the clencher right there. Bryony, now 77, narrates in the first person. She has just been diagnosed with irreversible dementia. She describes going to a library to do- donate her correspondence with Corporal Nettle, used to write this book, and afterwards attends a birthday party thrown by her surviving relatives, including Perot and Leon. While Bryony longs to publish her memoir, she cannot do so while Paul and Lola remain alive. They are now well-connected socialites and will doubtless sue her for libel. Bryony admits that her novelization has changed some details. For example, Robbie and Cecilia both actually perished in the war, but her fiction allowed them to live. But she reflects that even though achieving atonement will be impossible for her, her attempt to do so is indispensable. And thus ends the Mm -hmm. uplifting novel known as Atonement. So first question, of course, the one that I always get most nervous for is, did you like it? I did. Um, I will say that this novel starts very, very slowly. And there's a lot of description of what's going on in the house and who these people are and how important they are and all this stuff. And it, it grinds. But once you get to Robbie, like once the vase gets broken and then Robbie writes the letter, Brian, he witnesses, it starts to pick up. And then once you have the incident of the boys getting lost, Brian, he's seeing Paul rape Lola and it, the pace gets really quick because the second and third parts of this book are really, really intriguing. You know, the wartime part, the nurse, the nursing stuff and everything. But um, you you have to slog through a good like sixty to seventy pages of this book for it to actually start to pick up. Um, so, but I did overall, I did like it. I'm glad to hear it, and I liked it as well. I don't think I've recommended something yet that I haven't liked, but it's interesting now to go back and see details and see if you can pick up 
how soon you can pick up that it's, you know, Bryony's narration and you're actually in the midst of a novel within a novel sort of situation. But yeah, I enjoy it. And I can absolutely see uh, the slower temple. I enjoyed the details and I didn't feel like they were cumbersome as perhaps they would be with Dickinson, you know, Dickens novel. Yeah, yeah. Where it might be like, oh, no, not more of this. But yeah, I just get real, uh, real involved with it. It was just more uptight rich white people so i was just like okay what's the it's like when you well, go Robbie's into these not rich Did that make i know but, but the whole uh, yeah but the whole family and like you know the mother is like a shut-in and and that never really went anywhere so that was like my biggest issue was like she he went into all this detail about like all these people in the family and like the majority of them it they like wouldn't have even mattered in the grand scheme of things, if, if he had not like, you know, like her mother, like there, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, I thought something was going to happen. And so it was just, okay, these people are rich and there's societal, there's expectations on how they are supposed to behave and all these different things. And I guess he's supposed to be pointing a finger at them in some way or another, but it, it doesn't have like the pop that like Fitzgerald has. You know, Fitzgerald goes into details about all these awful rich white people in um, The Great Gatsby. But even though that novel does start a little slow and it doesn't really pick up until you actually meet Jay Gatsby, there's there, there's the, like I said, there's like a pop to it that that has you intrigued as to this world you're in. I, I Once things got going and the plot got going, I felt it was there. And I was like, okay, I'm, I, and I was, Robbie was like the character I was like most interested in because of like his status as an outsider and because like, and I was actually really interested in the relationship between Robbie and Cecilia. Like, you know, like I wanted to see how things were ha- happened or like, you know, and, and what that I was, I was, as you would say, shipping them oh. through most of the first part of the novel. Oh. And so that, that kept me going. And so anytime he jumped back to Cecilia, I was like, okay, this is really, really interesting. It's, you know, so, but then again, she was like one of my favorite characters in the book and so was he. So, so I think that's what it was. But like when we were getting into like the twin, the twins, like I, like, you know, like, ugh. <laughs> well, I think the twins are there potentially to help set up Lola since she initially blames oh, yeah. them for her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they are, and and it's just, but there's, it was like, he could have trimmed a little bit from some of the stuff, but for the most part, like I said, once, but the rest of the novel totally makes up for any slowness in the beginning of the, in the beginning of the book, because he, he takes the detail and the, the, the care he took with setting everything up, and in the Dunkirk parts, and then the nurse, uh, the, the nursing home, the hospital parts, he at, he does the same thing. He he makes it just as vivid, and that is even more engaging. So so I you know so that's what I liked about it. Did the ending surprise you? Did you realize before that, and really the ending of part three, I suppose, before the epilogue? Did you realize before you got there that you were reading Bryony's novel? I didn't until we hit the very very end of part part three, I think. Because when the point of view shift, I was like, wait, what's going on? And then I went back because at the end of part two, it says BT London 1999. So I went back and I, and, and I didn't I didn't realize I was reading her novel. So it, it did surprise me a little bit. 
Yeah, me too. I I knew because of the film. But even I was surprised when I was watching the movie as well. I thought that it was really deftly done that it, it keeps it until that moment. And then you're like, say what? We were reading Bryony's novel all along. So mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. At what point in the novel would you say the downward fall of our characters, which led to Robbie's arrest and, you know, his ultimate death in Cecilia's, began? Uh, I sort of call it the original sin. When do you think Mm -hmm. it really started? See, I'm going to peg it on Bryony misinterpreting everything because she is to blame for what happens to Robbie. So when she she reads the her reading the note, I think is what it does, because had Cecilia been completely offended, because I thought the note was the thing that was going to be the big crime, you know, and or whatever. And it wasn't. It was much more serious. Um, So because, again, rich, uptight white people who would get like scandalized and need their fainting couches for like, you know. You know, you wore the wrong color of shoes with that. You didn't match your shoes to your belt or like some sort of weird impropriety that went on. And, oh, oh, you know, but no, I was like, oh, wow, this actually is something that's serious that happened. But when Bryony starts like taking matters into her own hands and like misinterpreting it and, and really makes it all about her, I think that's where the original sin is. I feel like, but do you think that had she not read that note, had that read that wrong note not been given to her don't you think everything escalated after he put the wrong note in the well he gave bryony the wrong note do you think she would have been still as suspicious of him no but she shouldn't read that note no but she should have never read the note no well i agree that's the sin the sin is her it's her it's all her fault okay you know and so she should have never read the note in the first place yeah i had had he read um, had it been a more the more tame version of the note, he probably she probably wouldn't have um, it probably wouldn't have escalated as quickly as it did. But at the same time, so it would have been just like flirting, and and perhaps they would have gotten involved later on. You know, I think sure. they were. I like I said, I kind of I shipped them. I think they were destined to be together in some way. Yeah. And and these were thoughts he had. In response to, you know, the flirting that was going on and had Cecilia, Cecilia struck me as the type of character who was like forward thinking or no, 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 that's that's the wrong way to put it, who could stand up for herself. And had she been offended by the letter, she would have told him, you know, Mm. Um, so she would have stopped it, whether or not she would have told her her uh, family is uh, I think that's a good thing to speculate on but obviously she uh, she was not offended by it so um, but I think yeah I think Bryony Bryony overstepped her boundaries and and so you know yeah it might not have escalated as quickly but still still yeah yeah I guess I just point to that that letter but you know I guess you're right that Bryony is in the the center of it and she's so wrapped up anyways in her imaginations that it's almost as if a novel is unfolding before her and so yeah all these things are happening in regards to the letter Mm -hmm. why is it so offensive within the social context in which it is read but Cecilia herself is not terribly offended by it if offended by it at all 
The first part of that question, I think, is really easy to answer. It is the 1930s. It is a time of more modesty. Even now, however, I mean, he uses the C word in the letter, from what I remember. Um, So it is still, if this were today and it were a note, an email, a text or something, the vulgarity and the forwardness of it would still be um, pushing it, I think. You know, because they were, uh, you know, so so I think to other people that still could have been because of the language, because of the vividness, because of the vulgarity of it. I still think there are plenty of people around this time as well who would find it would find it offensive just because of its um, raciness, I guess you could say. I don't think Cecilia is offended by it because I think that's just the thing of her character. She is. I don't know. Maybe I mean, she was like, I, I get the feeling that she was flirting with him in a way that was maybe a little immature, you know, with the whole, I'm going to take my clothes off. She didn't get naked. I believe she stripped down to her underwear and jumped in the, in the fountain. So it's a very, like, it's almost a very, very immature way to flirt with somebody kind of like this performance of, of, of flirtation. But Maybe she doesn't isn't offended by it because it's validating the thoughts that she's been having and the signals that she's been sending. And she may may because the the problem is we don't get her reaction to the letter. If I'm remembering the book correctly, we shift to Bryony's point of view. So we never we never uh, do we see Cecilia write the read the letter and react to it or get her thoughts on it. I can't. I'm trying to remember. We and just I, I want to say we yeah, don't really because see much. she says, Bryony, did you, did you read it? Mm-hmm. But we don't get the start of the conversation that leads to the sex, right? Correct. Because it so, switches, I mean, it switches Bryony and then Robbie. Like, you don't really get Cecilia. Yeah, so we don't, we don't get, because she walks, I just remember her walking in on them. Yep. So, yeah, I just, I think, I think even if she was offended by it at first, maybe deep down and, and this, I mean, this is such a male point of view, but maybe deep down, like it was something that she was thinking as well, and it validated certain feelings, and that's why she met him in the library for uh, for sex, or what led to sex. Their their meeting in the library. Uh, it does get into her perspective, actually. On oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I missed that. It said, like, yeah, why? <laughs> I mean, Sorry. basically everything, it comes into focus for her because she okay. was wondering why she was so annoyed at him and all of this stuff. And she's like, how could I be so blind that, that you know, of my feelings and everything? So I think it, I think it helps her come to realize that she cares for Robbie. I think also we find out throughout the novel that she's pretty forward thinking mm-hmm. and almost, a, you know, quote unquote, modern woman. And so I, I think, you know, she's, she's a bit edgy for their time. So I think that yeah. might be why it, she's not offended by it. Necessarily. Yeah. There's just, there's a certain amount of, of uh, like sexual liberation or sexual, um, a lack of not modesty, but what's the word? I, now I'm looking for the word. Um, mm-hmm. she, she's just she is not. She is she is forward. She is progressive in a sense. Yeah. Again, maybe there. Yeah, maybe that's that. It, it. It. She feels like it allows her to to be the way who she truly is when it comes to that, and not be stuffed up by the conventions of which she is. Uh, she's bound by. You know. Yep. Well, speaking of this uh, this act in the library, 
we see it narrated from Robbie's point of view. How do you think it affects how the reader feels about what happens to him shortly afterwards? And do you think it's understandable that Bryony, who catches them, perceives this not as an act of love, but an act of violence? It did take me a moment to realize that when I looked at it, like I kind of came in with the um, at ver- very first, like when Bryony catches them, I was like, oh, is he raping her? And then, you know, you read into a little more like, no, 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 this is between two consenting adults. But like on that first glance and when I'm through Bryony's point of view, like I totally see how she can think right. that he's – she might not even know what rape is, you know. Yeah. In that level, she she sees that and she's like he's he's doing something bad to her. Um, he's assaulting her. And so I can totally see, especially since we established before she walks in on them that she is wary of him. You know, she saw the thing through the window. She read the note. She's like, this this guy isn't good news for my sister. And um, and like so in a way, even if it's her imagination running away with her, this is her worst. This is the, her fear is confirmed. And you can it, there's a logical progression from one point to another through Bryony's point of view that makes it that has that make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Well, it's just interesting that it's Robbie's point of view because mm-hmm. you almost want it to be Cecilia's because she's the one who's been so like close her feelings. She's been so conflicted about them. So it'd be interesting to know Mm -hmm. what she had to think. But then you go from this letter that he had written to this love scene and you're like, (laughs) you know, one, which is more, you know, as I used the word before vulgar, but you know, it's just more anatomical and there's not much sort of love there. It's just like more erotic. And then the love scene, Mm -hmm. which is, I would say uh, a little more beautiful and you can just tell that there are actual feelings involved. But now that you know that Bryony's writing the story, I wonder if maybe she like felt uncomfortable being on Cecilia's side and couldn't, you know, insert her perspective or take mm-hmm. Cecilia's perspective. I just wonder, you know, looking from that vantage point why she would do that. But it's easier for her to do it through the lens of Robbie because she's the, he's the one that she goes after anyways. So she can take that perspective and then have her own perspective in there and how it changes. So I think that's pretty interesting how she's able to do it. But, yes, absolutely. Coming in and, like, someone is on top of some – well, yeah. pushing someone against – I think they're up the, against bookcases, yeah, right? Yeah, the bookcase, yeah, is, like, you can't – tell what's happening and yeah. uh so absolutely you can i, I think understand well, where she's coming from but i think she's all, also already under this cloud this idea that he's not a good guy he's a menace he's going to go after his sister so that's already like her perspective's already tainted so going in there i don't know if she could see it in any other way yeah. Plus, her I, sister just walks past her. Like, when she's discovered, she just, like, fixes herself to a certain extent and just walks past and doesn't even address anything. Mm-hmm. So that could have been a moment where Cecilia actually addressed Bryony, but I think Cecilia was probably really embarrassed, so it's, it wasn't going to be the time for yeah. her anyways. Yeah, there's still, I mean, take away what Bryony thinks, there's still an innocence about that whole scene, which I know is ironic considering what they're doing, but... Like I said, there, there's an immaturity about those two characters at that point, and it's a very like they're sneaking off to do something bad. There is something very 
yeah, childlike or innocent about that. Childlike is such a bad word to say when you're talking about sex. Um, sure. There's something very adolescent about it. You know, there's something very immature about that, which you would expect from two people who are what are, are they? No, they've graduated. Are, they're a little older. I'm trying to remember how old she is. I think 20. Oh, who, Bryony? No, Cecilia oh, and yeah, Robbie. Oh, yeah, 21, 22. So they're they in college. They just graduated university. University. Yeah. So they're, they're still young. So they're still of that, you know, that's that's kind of like, it is very much of that age. It is very much of that, let's sneak off somewhere or like when you're a teenager, like, you know, my parents are away, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and despite the act that you are undertaking, there is something not cute but like weirdly innocent about the fact that you know and and so i i see where you're talking about how it is more romantic than it is like vulgar or erotic or anything of the way they are having sex in that in that room because because of the circumstances and the way they've they've led to each other mm, yep okay well after the the point and and i just want to say that there there could have been questions on Lola's side about why did she do this? Why did she do that? But really, mm-hmm. as with any victim of really any crime, but especially sexual assault, it's it's really not right to question what their you know what was going through their mind and why they acted in the way that they acted. Uh, because even when I was reading this the first this this time with the whole you know she was blaming it on the twins, that one was interesting. Because once you looked forward, um, you would think that you would realize it must have been Paul. But asking questions like, did you know it was Paul? I I feel like it might be dangerous territory. So I'm just going to avoid those sorts of, you know, why didn't she do this or what was going on. Mm -hmm. And we'll just focus on Bryony. So talking about this this violent action here, why does Bryony stick to her story with such unwavering commitment? Do you think it's out of malice? Do you think that she actually truly believes it? I think it's a little more toward the latter. I think she's I think she's trying to protect her sister. Like she actually believes Robbie was trying to hurt her, Cecilia and the way things worked out in her head, if Robbie would do that to Cecilia, he would certainly do it to Lola cuz Robbie was interrupted. Right. So he's got, well, he's got to do it. You know, so in her, she's what, she's like 13 or something at the time. She's, she's, you know, not a little kid, but she's, so she's old enough to know a couple of things, but she's still not old enough to really, really work her way through exactly what has been happening. I think on some level it is, yeah, she is, she is trying to protect her in her mind. She's trying to protect her family. She's trying to protect her. So she's not doing it to hate Robbie she's doing it out of a what she perceives a sense of love and and even justice uh, because this is what she thinks happened I agree with you I think the only times I waver in that is when she says I know it was him I know it was him rather than I saw him I saw him Mm -hmm. and so the fact that she is filling in details and she's coaxing Lola it it makes me feel uncomfortable <laughs> a little bit to say that, you know, it's completely because I, I agree with you completely that you want to protect her sister. But, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, did she know it was Robbie? Um, 
or was she filling in in the gaps with her imagination? I don't know. Um, but just yeah. some of the things she was saying to the officers and how she uh, repeated, "I know it was him," rather than "I saw him," is is interesting. But yeah, it can. It, but then you know, she gets to a point in her life where she realizes that she was wrong. And so, where do you think that turning point happened? And the fact that she wants to retract her statement. So what caused that? What was the catalyst for her realizing she was wrong? I don't know. Um, I think if we're talking about the reality and not the fiction that she writes, probably their deaths. And the fact that, you know, or I don't, you know, that, that she, or when one or both of them died, the fact that she has some sort of regret over never having um, confronted anybody about this or told the truth about it starts to come in because she can never make up for the time that she lost, especially since her sister refused to talk to her. Or maybe it was that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I couldn't really figure it out because my, my beef with th- this character is that I don't think she actually changes very much by the end of the novel. Mm. I don't like her. Even as a 77-year-old? No. Okay. Because she should have published the book 30, 40 years earlier. Sure. And that really bothered me. It's like, oh, you can atone for this now? It's it's always about her. It, like you, in, in the question you had, you said, like, is she acting out of uh, a part of self-importance when she makes the accusations? And I think that's part of it, too. I think when you're 13 and you're the center of attention in that regard, it's – unintentional mm. that you have a little bit of self-importance. You're like, you're in the spotlight. People are actually paying attention to you, not shuffling you out of the room. So you're going to kind of grab it, even though you don't intend to, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But there, the whole rest of the novel, it's, it's about her and it's about her feeling better about this. And she puts them together in fiction because it essentially makes her feel better. So she never really loses that sense of self-importance. Mm. And I mean, it starts off with that play too. So I, I think you get a sense of who Bryony is because she wants to be the lead yeah, in yeah. the uh, the trials yeah. of Arabella. Yeah, what is that play? I was like, what is this trials of? Arabella? I was trying to figure out like what the whole point of the play was, but I guess it was just supposed to be something like really silly and stupid, and and you know, um, the type of thing that that like a family would be like, kind of what the heck is this? But we better laugh and clap because little kids are putting it on, you know, like. Sure. I mean, that's that was the impression I got, but then she decides to chuck it all. Yeah, because she gets yeah real upset. Scout. Yeah, I guess because of the the fountain scene. Yeah, I think part of it is you get a sense of her as a writer early on, and that she might be trying to be older than she really is by using words that are sort of out of her vocabulary, though I guess used correctly. Mm-hmm. And. I'm trying to think of what the actual plot was, but I mean, it is about this girl who like runs away with this guy that's not, I think, in her same sort of social strata. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if to a certain extent it relates well to Cecilia and Robbie, but she wouldn't have known that. Yeah, she's really precocious. Of course. And yeah. she doesn't really outgrow it. Yeah. I think for you, I, I agree with you. I think in terms of the novel within the novel, her her empathy is once they die, unfortunately, or not really empathy, but the fact that she wants to change things is, I think, when they 
when they die and she has this chance or this desire mm-hmm. to make an atonement for what happened. But I think in terms of potentially real life, I'm hoping that as she grows up, she's able to understand what had actually happened and perhaps it come becomes clear maybe details uh, especially putting together i think the the marks that lola had uh the marks that in the before the dinner the marks that uh paul had at dinner which attention is brought to it but not a lot of attention it's just like a detail that's written down mm-hmm. and uh yeah I think the the field as well. So I think it's able to she's able to bring it to mind. I find it interesting the father writing to her as if he knows the truth or he knows what had actually happened. Now I don't know if that's bias or not because the mother obviously didn't really care for Robbie and he he had been his patron, his benefactor for yeah. uh, his all of his schooling. He was about to put him through more. But I just wonder if he knew he knew the truth, but he couldn't really. Knew the truth and that he knew it was Paul, or that he just yeah. simply knew it wasn't Robbie. Oh, oh, well, that's interesting. I think he knew it wasn't Robbie, but the fact mm-hmm. that he brings her attention to the Paul and Lola wedding, I think, says a great deal mm-hmm. as well. But anyway, yeah, I think just growing up, I think things might become clear. Like I sometimes think back to certain events with like a different perspective. I'm like, wow. You know, that was, that wasn't good or, you know, something like that. So I think maybe as she grew older, it's and it's such a big event. It's like a cataclysmic event for a young girl. Yeah. And I mean, she was in the spotlight. All this stuff happened. Lives changed. Cecilia left the family. So I think it's probably something that she looked back on several times as she grew up. And so I think it just developed into something that she realized she was wrong. Yeah. I mean, I understand. I think she realized that she was wrong and, and you know. I, I mean, I still think that I, I still am very frustrated by her in, in later in life, though, because I, I just it because, you know, I've had those I've had that as well, where you get you get perspective in hindsight and you realize that certain behaviors you had, certain things you said when you were younger were terrible. You know, it could be it could be in any issue or anything like that. Um, it could be that the relationships you had in the past were not you know, we're like actually more toxic than you realize and, you know, things like that as well. But let's <laughs> put enough about me. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I totally agree with you there. I think that, I think that she does gain perspective. I don't think she's, you know, exactly the same at 77 as she is at 13 or she's, and I do think she changes as a result of her experiences in the war, especially but I, I, I just I don't find this act of atonement as great as she probably thinks I should. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I don't find it as genuine as I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, she has them have a happy ending, and that's more to make her feel better than. Yeah. So. You know, they're they're ghosts or their spirits there. Yeah. Do you think that the family accepts Bryony's story partially because of their place in society versus Robbie's place in society? Do you think there's a prejudice there already? Oh yeah, and it's really easy to. You know, when you are when you are high up, you can blame the poor trash, so to speak. Um, and you're high up and you can basically you know, um I mean we've seen it, we've seen it time and again, we've seen it in this country 
um, where the you know where you have somebody who's rich and can essentially buy their way out of jail in some way or another, or they have enough influence with the local authorities that if they accuse somebody like a Robbie Turner of doing it, nobody's going to call them into question for it. You know, yeah. um, we've seen it. You know, we've seen it throughout this country in with. Uh, with race we've seen it with with other other factors as well you know because it makes it really easy because the of the way that like the family is viewed they're well known they're well respected and and they can use that to their advantage so it's an open and shut case you know yeah yep yep i agree with you do you think that the author is implying anything about the power of the imagination and its potential for harm when unleashed into the social world? I think so in some regard. Um, I think that 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 particular social world, you know, and I think even ours um, that that you have to, I, I think it takes a certain amount of sophistication and maturity to really understand, you know, what you're doing. But unfortunately, at that age, you don't necessarily have it. Uh, the ages of any of the character three characters who involved, especially evolved in the situation in um, the library, and so I think he is. I think he is. Um, he is implying that there. It's it's like uh, you know not what you wield. You know. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it. I mean, this could be a true story. You mm-hmm. know, this could be any of those, any of the recent stories that have come out, whether they're. I mean, they, they're going to damage someone no matter what. And mm-hmm. so uh, whether they're true or not is, is not for us to, to, oh, to comment on. But just the it, fact that, you know, yeah, but, any story can impact somebody. That's one of the strengths of this novel. I mean, like, you know, it is a really realistic – like you could see this happening and you Absolutely. could transport this to America and you could see it happening today. Um, you could see it happening in 1935. It's – it's not far fetched. And, and I, that's one thing I really did appreciate this. Like McEwen doesn't, there is like, doesn't go for the whole social justice, you know, no dramatic courtroom scene where like somebody breaks down and admits something, you know, it's, it plays out just as it had and just as it has over times, many times. So talking about Lola, why do you think Bryony decides not to confront her and Paul, Paul Marshall at their wedding Five years later. I'm not sure. Maybe because she knows they're going to deny it. And it's going to be. It's it's going to be worse. It's going to make her look worse than them. Like this isn't going to. It's not going to change anything. I don't know. What do you think? I Yeah. I wonder about this every time. Well, every time I see it. Every time I read it. Because she. Lola makes eye contact with Bryony. She knows that she's there. And yeah. so I think for Bryony. It's interesting that. It's almost like her fantastical world can't break through to the realistic world or vice versa potentially because once she has that conversation, it's real. It's really real that she destroyed a man's life and she was potentially a party to – I mean I don't know how Lola and Paul's relationship is. I assume it's maybe not the best. Yeah, we don't really see it, do we? Yeah, no, we don't. And they're going strong however many years, you know, 30 or whatever years later when she's 77. I guess it's more than that, 50 years later. So, you know, she's potentially a party to an abusive relationship if, if, if that's what it's like. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so she had so so many chances to potentially do that. I don't know why she doesn't step in there. And perhaps it's like, what is it? Not a fool me once, but like once something, once, twice shy. <laughs> I'm once bad on bitten, that. twice yes. shy? Yeah, and so she made the mistake once. With, yeah. you know, pointing her finger at somebody else. So perhaps there's that fear there that she doesn't want to ruin someone else. And, and what if I'm wrong again? And this is not who it is. Though I feel like she does have that confidence. But I think there is something there with, um, like, she's confidently right. But I think there is just that fear of actually doing something about it. And who's going to believe her also? She, like, already is the girl who cried wolf to a certain extent. Yeah. And there's also that feeling of, you know, if we're talking about propriety, proprietaries and um, and society and the family even though she has separated herself from the rest of the family to a certain extent at least with her profession and stuff there's still that it's it's a hard habit to break of of the feeling that this is neither the time nor the place to do this social can social rules what am i looking for customs manners those sorts of things like you know who dares interrupt a wedding like this? And um, even though, because she never really did tell on Robbie and Cecilia either. There was no dramatic sort of, you know, the drama came from the the rape that she thought she witnessed. Well, she did witness, but you know, you know what I mean. Right. What she thought she witnessed in the rape, but yeah, but I think I also think you're right that like you know she realizes of like you know is it she doesn't think it's worth it to ruin somebody else's life now because of a number of different factors. But yeah, I also think there's also that sort of like, you know, you say you're going to do this and you're like, I'm going to do this. But then when, when push comes to shove, you, you back down because like you, you know, you play through your head a million times. What actually comes out of your mouth is much, much different. What aspects of atonement make it powerful as a war novel? Certainly the action and the war scenes with Robbie um, in, the, in the evacuation of France, I think it's really well written, but also, and maybe this is because over on my other show, uh, in country, I just wrapped up five episodes where I talked about, uh, a, a memoir of a nurse in Vietnam and then did all four seasons of China beach that, that, that hit home with me really well because I'd been dealing with nurses in another war and in my fiction. So, um, her being a nurse in the war, in the ward with all the victims and things like that, um, I think also is really powerful because it, it gives you that aspect of the war that simply just showing carnage and action on the battlefield, uh, will not, will not give you. So it adds to the human cost, and I thought that's what made it part part of what made it a powerful war novel. Yeah, and as a new nurse too, and just mm-hmm. really capturing her inexperience and being overwhelmed, and yeah. also the tragedy through her eyes, and like not being able to to save everyone or being comfort comforting someone in their final hours, and then on Robbie's side, you get to see. Number one, I think the the people that you might meet on the side of the road, the different families that were mm-hmm. impacted by it. So the, the barn that they stayed at, 
at one point with the, the mother who was willing to uh, basically kill them, potentially. And then, uh, well, she threatened that her sons would kill them. And then um, the woman and her young son who were killed by the bomb that he was, like, trying to protect, but they were there one minute and gone another. So the impact on the people and then just the, yeah, the soldiers and, and what they have to go through, I thought, was really well done. Why do you think, now this isn't a question that I had in there, but something that I wondered mm. while this was happening is in regards to Robbie's wound, So he just doesn't, you know, it seems like the officers near him, the corporals, at least one of them, especially at the end, I think he gets a sense of what's going on because he says something like, oh, I see, or I'd have to find the page. But it seems like he finally understands that Robbie's wounded. But even Robbie realizes that he's wounded but he doesn't do it he doesn't talk to anyone about it he doesn't go and get it checked out even though there are opportunities to do so it's clearly a bad wound uh the way that um it's described just how it, it how painful it is which any wound would be but you can tell that it's like yeah we festering because it's it's been several days so why doesn't he do anything about it what's what's up with this wound here is this one of the places where we should have included into this as a piece of fiction on the part of Bryony? Oh, yes, like, that is true. Because that's what I'm wondering. I don't know why he doesn't do anything about it, to be honest with you. So it's just a way for her, because she knows that he died there. It was just yeah. a way to, to do that, potentially? Yeah, to show show something very heroic about him. Um, is that heroic? Up, well... I guess my, my issue, the disconnect is that Throughout that entire part, he's uh -huh. going back and forth between the present and trying to get to the beach and yeah. the letters and Cecilia. And so I'm just thinking like this wound is basically putting you between getting, you know, between where you are now and, and getting back to Cecilia. So why wouldn't you get it checked out? Oh, it's it's dramatic. It's romantic that, <laughs> you know, you, you fought and you fought and, you know, um, especially in the way we romanticize the second world war in some regard, you know, there are certain things about the second world war we do not romanticize. And I'm not saying that we romanticize the entire war, but when it comes to the generation that fought the war and it comes to certain battles and things, there is a, it is generally considered, I believe some people have even referred to it as the good war because they were fighting for a cause, a good cause. And, uh, and I'm not saying that to take away from it, but it, there is space for heroes. There is space for the dramatic, romantic deed and 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 the sort of superhuman feats of I can't believe these people were able to do this. And we see that in stories like Dunkirk, and we see that in in you know in in other stories that um, you know in addition to the things that were horrific, you know. And I think that's just that there's a romance that comes with well, there's a romance between Cecilia and Robbie, obviously. But there's a romance that comes through with this particular war that you don't get with a lot of other wars. And I think that's – she's contributing to that in a way or that's how she's painting that particular portrait. I hear you and I, I can I can listen to what you have to say. I just have a problem with it. I even think now I've, I'm thinking about the fact that he's going to be uh, in the medical field and he – you know, he's – he pushes, he touches it a little bit, and he's like, oh, it hurts. And I just think, oh, what were you doing, sir? Maybe he knew that it was bad. I mean, maybe it was fatal all along, and there was nothing they could do. And so he just decided to go on hoping and and ignore the problem while it was there. But I just wish it didn't have to end that way, frankly. 
it's a very hyper masculine thing. It's a very tough it out be the that aspect of it that we are men and we're not going to let this we are going to finish the job and then we will you know because you're fighting the war and and that's what i was coming at with the romantic aspect of it you know in all practical sense yes he's an idiot for not getting medical attention the moment he got hurt but in that romantic sense the way we romanticize the battle we romanticize the war it's he kept going and this yeah that's where i'm coming from that that idea that he is a hero now because he's because of the sacrifice for the greater good we have that we have that image of a lot of soldiers and and i and and that's i think the if bryony writing within the novel is writing that particular type of war novel so then we go about into the ending Mm-hmm. And there were really two endings here, one in which the fantasy of love is fulfilled and one in which that fantasy is stripped away. And as Bryony actually says uh, in her final version of the book, she says, who would want to believe that the young lovers never met again, never fulfilled their love? Who would want to believe that except in the service of the bleakest realism? So what is the emotional effect of having this double ending? It reminds me of another novel that I have brought up, and I think I've actually brought up this entire scene from this other novel. 2001, right around the same time. Life of Pi. Oh, okay. Because, and... That is, yes? Skip ahead a few seconds if you don't want to be spoiled for the ending of Life of Pi. Oh my goodness. At the end, there's two stories in that, and yeah. he tells these people, what would you rather believe? And I feel that that's what's going on here, right? I think it's like we want to believe in the love conquers all ending because it's romantic and it's positive. And even though she doesn't reconcile with her sister in that scene fully, she is on the path to doing that. And Cecilia is with Robbie and you get the sense that everything will be okay. That we're going to make up for this. We will make up for this lost time. All hope is not lost. Mm. And we'd rather believe that. Because it's what we want out of an ending to a story. Because reality is much, much messier. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for me, I like the the ending that Bryony has in her novel within the novel. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think I'm – it's realistic in the sense of that story because she's not completely forgiven. Which I I think, you know, at some point maybe they'll get to that. But, you know, what she did was pretty bad. And it did ruin several lives, at least one. And so to have them, you know, be really, really cheery and well, I think would be totally unrealistic. But the fact that they gave her directions of this is how it's going to go, that sort of thing, and then walked her to the station and then they had a few more moments alone together before they were going to be separated, I thought was great and realistic. And then, yeah, of course, as I kept saying, it's a gut punch once you realize that that is not what happened. And so it's realistic in the real world, the fact that this war did, in fact, you know, take lives. And isn't it also called the Great War? The first one? The First World War. Okay. The First World War was referred to as the Great War. Okay. Yeah. And World War Two, isn't that the most people were lost in that one? Or did Vietnam surpass that now? No, World War Two I believe is the is the, the okay. 
largest scale conflict um, and, and the most lives lost. Um, the First World War is also just an enormous number of life of life lost yeah. as well. Um, and, and and the thing that that I've always um, I know I'm tangenting here, but the thing that I've always been astounded by when we talk about the amount of life lost in World War One is these trench battles where hundreds of thousands even in the in the low millions were killed over the span of a few days for or or even weeks of fighting and no territory changed hands it was like this two-year stalemate where nothing moved or the force would gain territory and then lose it and it was just this volley back and forth and just Hundreds upon hundreds and thousands of people were going over these walls and dying, and that the carnage of World War One has always been. But World War Two is just as bad because you, now you have the 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 fighting from the air, right. battles in the air, carpet bombing of cities. You have six million people being put to death in camps. You have this, um, you have the atomic bomb. You have just this this the, the scale of this thing. You know, it's something that I can't even comprehend. And um, uh, my, my grandfather fought in it, as many of my generation's uh, grandparents did. But even then, I can't. It's 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 hard to really fathom, like living through that time and and seeing how everywhere was there was a battle being fought. And so, yeah, but yeah, it is, it is just an enormous, enormous war. I agree with you, by the way, on how she did make it realistic enough. Yeah. There wasn't, the, I liked the fact that Cecilia was kind of like, well, this is how it's going to go, you know? And, and I liked her character. I still like Cecilia and Robbie at the end. I, and, and Cecilia was my favorite character in the entire novel and didn't really get much else of her. But, um, and then the gut punch, I think it works on some level because of the fact that it is so realistic. I, but I am bothered by the by her interaction with the family at the end. It's just oh sure at, yeah at, at age seventy seven yeah at age seventy seven gotcha yeah and I think also realistically you know because they're in London we all mm-hmm. know that London was probably one of the worst mm. damaged. I'd say mm-hmm. France is also, but you know, all the, so to know that Cecilia was in the city at that time, that makes sense. And then, and where Robbie was, I think it makes sense, unfortunately. Oh, where they go. But yeah, you can only hope that they would get together. There's like, and, and Cecilia, especially Robbie, like their deaths, there's not, they're not anonymous, but there's like almost an, an, an anonymity to them that, it's not a big dramatic death moment. It's like they're one of so many that killed got killed in the same circumstances. Right, yeah. So this could be a story about any of them. Yeah, so many people died in the Blitz. So many people died fighting for the English, fighting for the Americans, fighting for the allies in the war. They're not special in their deaths. No. And I think that's another part of the gut punch there because these are characters you've grown to know. Right. And you want to know what's going to happen to them. You just saw this whole thing and then you realize that it's just – it just ended because the way so many other people's lives did and it ends all unresolved and that that's really powerful absolutely well we get to the end where mm-hmm. she gets to see her long delayed performance of the child of arabella and everything but i want to talk more about what she's suffering from her vascular dementia which yeah. will result in the loss of her memory and potentially the loss of her identity do you think that 
she will actually be, or I guess I'll say would. Do you think she would be happy to forget what she had done? I mean, that that might turn out to be the case, unless there's just this one lingering thing that she always remembers. Do you think that in the end, this dementia is like the best thing for her because she'll forget this? I don't know, because it would be if she hadn't written the book, I guess. But again... She's still she's still hanging around just with the book. She's upsetting the family and she's walking away. But the frustrating thing about it is that she's doing it too late because it's going to be about her. It's not going to be about Paul. Like they're going to be able to. Say? I'm sorry. What did you say? I thought I thought I heard you say pee pal Paul. Paul. I said it's not going to be about her. It's going to be about Paul. Oh, Paul. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but did I cut in and out? No, I don't think so. I just heard P-Pal Paul. No, it's not going to be about her. It's going to be about Paul. Sorry, it's not going to be about Paul. It's going to be about her. Yeah. Because they've been married for so long now. Because you're talking like 60 years or 50 years or whatever worth of marriage. And you're talking about – so now it's like why would she do this to us after all these years? And they can turn it on her. These people have learned nothing about anything of humanity in the time they are still the same rich a-holes they were in the 30s and maybe she has learned something and i will give you that she has certainly grown through her experiences but even then she's still the precocious child who wants to be the center of attention (laughs) maybe that's why McEwen uses the play at the end to kind of bring it's a circular framing it's a circular device obviously right. like you know we're circling back around but maybe that's also why he uses the play it's just kind of to show us that even though she has changed we've seen her experiences and stuff like that deep down she's still this precocious kid who wants attention and this is her last time to do it which i know is a cynical way to look at this character but yeah, well, I th- also think it's like a big reminder also that things haven't changed. And I mean, Arabella is like where everything started once they started rehearsing mm-hmm. that, the twins. Yeah. And, I mean, her cousin showed up and it was just a snowball after that. So I think it's also just a brutal reminder that I think that will always be with her. And so while, you know, it might be best in terms of someone's sanity to potentially rid her of that memory i think maybe maybe in you know searching for atonement maybe one of those things is that she does always remember and she never forgets because i don't think it's her right to forget that because that would almost mean like she's forgiven herself and i don't know that she she ever will so i think it's just something Mm -hmm. like a cross or an albatross that she would just always hold on to so i wouldn't be surprised if she forgets many details but she always remembers that Mm mm-hmm you know, the last question I erased it, but, you know, just unless you want to elaborate, but you can just say yes or no. Do you think that she has made an atonement? Um, I think I, I probably already answered it based yeah, on I the fact that I don't think she has. I, yeah, uh, <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, yeah. So, okay. and no, so I don't, I mean, I think on some level, maybe a little bit, yeah. I think in her mind, I think in her mind she has. So in her own conscience, this is a variety's novel effective in her own conscience as an act of atonement. I think in her mind it is. In my mind it's not. Yeah, and I think it's sort of – I'm sort of thinking about Catholicism here and the fact that you have – I don't think they're called atonements. I'm trying to think of what they're called now. You know, and you have your confession and then you're given something. Penance. Uh, penance. Yeah, it's probably – yeah, penance. Okay. I think that's yeah, what you're looking yeah, for. So yeah, I think both of us who have yeah. Catholic family members can't remember anything. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, Well, yeah, see, because I've not – 
done my test or anything. But, I mean, all that, to, I think she's probably doing penance now or she's like building up to it you know the sort of her forms of like hail marys or things like that in writing yeah in writing the novel and working up but the fact that she hasn't published it i think is a really big thing that uh is preventing her atonement because until she does that she cannot clear robbie's name and and even though robbie is dead i think he still deserves his name to be cleared because he didn't do it and so, oh, I completely agree yeah. with you, but the problem is she's doing it in a time where nobody's going to give a crap. Yeah, unfortunately, you know yeah, nobody knows who he is. Her yeah, parents, I mean, her parents brother, are gone. I guess. He's dead. Yeah. Will it scandalize the family only for a short time, and then they can retreat to their own little bubble of dining with the queen or whatever the heck they do? I mean, yeah, it, it serves so little purpose for her to release the novel at that point. Yeah. Yep. So I agree so. that I think she's on her path to atonement, but she's not there yet. And I don't think I personally don't think she will receive the atonement until she publishes that novel. But mm-hmm. even so, you kind of I feel like atonement would almost be granted by the other people. So I think maybe she never would because Robbie and Cecilia are dead. Mm-hmm. So I almost wonder if yeah. atonement is not inconceivable, but like unreachable, an unreachable idea for her. Yeah, I don't know. I think. I think you got a really good not point to there. make a a really downer novel, but it is yeah. it's not the it most is a very downer novel. of a novel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I think the first part up until you know the twins go missing is you know it's kind of uh, happy, I guess, yeah. uh, in terms of Cecilia and Robbie. But then it just you know, and there's some hope throughout because you're like, oh, well, Robbie and Cecilia will get together. But then once it ends before, and you've got the yeah her her initials and everything. You're like say what this is all mm-hmm. fake so yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah there you go so would you would you recommend this novel to others would you teach it would it could it fall in your curriculum I don't I don't think I could teach this I, it just doesn't see there are other novels I would put above this in terms of teaching it um, I could see this in a college level of, of something of an advanced English class but um, not no, I mean granted it's a personal preference as well I'm not one for for teaching novels like this um recommend it probably i think i would recommend like rebecca before i recommend this if somebody's (laughs) looking for you know it's i know it's not on the same level as rebecca but it is you know rich family and etc etc and i I did enjoy rebecca i would say i enjoyed rebecca more than i enjoyed atonement but i still but somebody who likes this sort of book and or um or has enjoyed things such as if I'm doing the because you watched this oh, uh, sure. that you see on Netflix or Amazon. Yeah. Um, if you did enjoy Jane Eyre or Rebecca, or if you didn't, or you do enjoy like um, The Crown, I guess Downton Abbey. I have I do have not seen a single minute of Downton Abbey, but if you enjoy things about uptight, repressed, rich white people. This might this might work for you. Even people who enjoy the Get Great Gatsby, I think, might enjoy this. So I would recommend just reading this and seeing seeing what what you would make of this. And then I I might actually look up the movie and watch the movie. I've never seen the movie, it's but on no, Netflix, I don't think. Just so you know. Oh, cool, cool. I don't think I would teach this though. Yeah, I think you know if I were an English teacher or a creative writing teacher, I think it would be great. Uh, well, hold on. I, I think, think if I were a I creative writing teacher, I think it would be great to show how like that twist that you come to yeah. and and, and, yeah. I, and I think that um 
I think that you could pick certain excerpts and certain scenes from this book and for a creative writing exercise, the hospital scenes, especially I think are like wonderfully descriptive. Um, the dialogue and the conversation between Cecilia, Robbie and Bryony at the end of the novel, that scene where she sees them in the apartment. I think this is a really, really well-written scene. So I could take like in a creative writing class, I could take certain scenes from this book and be like, okay, look, look how these characters interact. Look at how he sets up the scene, you know, look at the dialogue and, and things like that, because it's a very realistic portrayal. So that's where I think you could probably teach it. And I think also teaching people perspectives and how to mm -hmm. change point of views seamlessly yeah. potentially. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I recommend it. I I enjoy this novel. I'm really hoping that anyone listening to this has read it before they listen because I guess we, we I guess we always have sort of spoilers intact, but I just feel like this one might be compared to everybody else. I, well, I guess the, the, by everybody else, I mean compared to every other thing we've done. Isn't this one the most like plot twisty that we've had so far? I mean, Rebecca, I when you find out what happened. That's definitely one of them. Um, Jane Eyre does have that twist of oh, the woman true. in the attic. Yeah. I guess where the world's ends had a particular twist because they die off. But I don't think that's like on the level of this, you know. This does skirt the line of it was all just a dream <laughs> a little bit. Oh, shit. Uh, but that doesn't go completely overboard there. Yeah, I think this has. I think this has is is one of the more twisty, turny types of of books in the twenty four episodes that we've done. I'm trying to think of like other ones, but but yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. Okay. Well, uh, now should we're on we to feedback? Right. I was going to say, should we move on to feedback? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So uh, we have. An email from our Scholastic book buddy, Robert Ward. Uh, it's, a, it's a long one. This is about Don Quixote. So I'll go ahead and read the whole thing through. Dear Stella and Tom, thank you for another great episode. It's been too, a too long period between your episodes. Because oh, remember, guys, we took a month off because summer. And I'm so glad to hear you two returned, although I have some issues. Uh, before I start to some points, I want to say I really enjoyed this book. Don Quixote tends to be a bit frustrating at points, but also pretty engaging. Um, I will interject to say the same thing. Uh, I once tried to read it before when I was still in high school, but I gave up more than halfway through book one. I used to watch Wishbone when I was younger, and a prime reason of why Don Quixote has stuck with me was that show. The months before the announcement, I was even contemplating a read-through on my own. Cool. Following at a few points that I wanted to add to. One, while it can be sad that Don Quixote never met Dul Dulcinea, is how we were pronouncing it? Yeah. Okay. It should be remembered that she never really existed in the first place. Dulcinea was always a concept and MacGuffin. I'm but, assuming we all know what a MacGuffin is. Yeah. Well, I okay. just disagree with that because it was based off of a real life. It was based off like of a bar wench. So she existed mm -hmm. to a certain extent as other things existed in Don Quixote's mind. They had some sort of form in reality, basis okay. in reality. Well, anyways, but continue. Yeah. Okay. When Don Quixote uh, renamed the woman Dulcinea, I'm sure, pretty sure Cervantes stated that he's never actually met her and he built her up out of romantic necessity. I watched the film version of the Broadway musical The Man of La Mancha and feel that the best the book could ever do, but probably wouldn't, is to follow that. Don Quixote comes across the Dulcinea, but in actuality, she is simply a barmaid and a part-time prostitute who is uh -huh. troubled. And annoyed by everything Don Quixote does before finally coming around and finding herself built up by his actions. See the musical number, What Does He Want of Me? 
two, I hated the ending. Ultimately, as problematic as the second book is compared to the first, the book ends too abruptly for me. The fact that he just automatically gets better and casts off everything he did was annoying and cheapens the entire epic. There is a prologue that bored me stiff that touched upon the whole, is he really insane? But to see him die suddenly, a rational and regretful man that a, bl- that a blissful fool is infinitely more depressing. Do you have any commentary on that? I'm trying to remember whether or not I like the ending. I'm trying to think about, well, he said that he really enjoyed the book. Yeah. Well, you can I enjoy it. I want to say that I it's really, a long maybe he book, didn't Stella. enjoy it. Yeah, but he's coming up with all these negative things. So I'm like, he wants to say, but, but he he's... can't say. Maybe that's what he really meant and he hated it. I don't I, know. I, I don't know. I think he's, I think he's nitpicking too because we'll, we will always nitpick books that we like. Sure. If we have to, if we have to be critical, so um, and and I don't know. See, I don't, I'm trying to remember whether or not I like the ending, but there are well, books that I have tragic ending. Yeah, there are books that I have really enjoyed where the ending is something that I was just like was not my favorite part of the book. You know, sure. So not to talk about the ending of it, but the ending of it is is one of them. Um, and that we don't you talk don't about, like. We don't. Yeah, we don't talk about what happens at the end of it, but. <laughs> that part of it um there are a couple of stephen king novels where where his ending i'm just like what are you doing here uh and there are other novels i've read in the past where i'm just like yeah i'm not so sure about how this ends oh uh a book that you probably didn't like at all but i did have some twists and turns was 1984 oh, <laughs> to sure. bring up an earlier That's point true. um which i'm getting ready to teach again by oh, the way because we're coming around to that time of the year Oops, sorry uh let's get back to robert's email Number three, I really thought you would hate the book-burning chapter more. I found it deeply painful to read. The priest and the barber were clearly villainous characters, and to cast off book after book for their delusional, misconstructed lo- misconstrued logic sorry, was one of the more obnoxious parts of the novel, like the self-centered monstrosity of the Duke and the Duchess, a great example of their awfulness. I want to say that we, maybe on my from my point of view, I, I really didn't like seeing them burn all the books and I, cause it really did bother me, but the book is so enormous that there's just details. We could yeah. That, that we could have done a, Hours. we, we, yeah, we could have done like a, we could have done double that amount of time that we spent on the book, just pouring through the different details of the book. So um, on, on his point in here, um, unless you have something else to, no, I mean, burning books is bad. I'm always oh, yeah. against it. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that book at some point, too. Um, oh. Because it's one of my favorite novels. Number four, one missed opportunity that I want to ask is that, uh, is there a favorite? Do you have, basically, I think, um, sorry, this is, uh, is there, is there a favorite story within the story and a least favorite story of ours, I guess? Except for the ending, I quite like the story of well, I Card- from Don Quixote, right? Oh uh, yeah, from Don Quixote. That's what I meant. Yeah, um, I quite like the story. The story of Cardinio. I would much f- prefer Cardinio to duel and spare Don Fernando's life because what he did was a totally dick move, and he should never have gotten away with it. I'm gonna pass this one on to you because I'm having trouble remembering. <laughs> sure, I think my favorite actually I liked when he was in the well 
And I guess he was just in for a couple hours, but it seemed like it was days to him. And he was yeah. being visited by these different spirits. And it just reminds me, because I have a soft spot for Aeneas, of course. It just reminds me of, you know, Odysseus or Aeneas going to the underworld and being visited by different people. Or he visiting, you know, and having a purpose down there. And I'm just, just about told to prophecy. Yeah, and just, uh, you know, prophecies and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I liked that when he was trapped in the well. A least favorite? I'm trying to think. I feel like probably one of the ones where, like, the, the women are being held for whatever purpose um, yeah. might have been, you know, like, just really convoluted. The guy doesn't get the girl. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of those would have been, yeah, like, there was a trickery. There were two of them, and then the pairs ended up getting back together or something like that. So I, I think one of those would be my least favorite. Yeah. His, uh, to, to get back to what Robert was saying, um, he says that his least favorite um, story was about book one, chapters 12 through 14. At first, he says the age of the novel is to be remembered. I think he means by the um, how old it is. But but the way the dead shepherd blamed the shepherdess Marcella for not returning his affection was deeply troubling. There were passages that I would have to reread, but I got very upset and had to take multiple breaks from. Then that ending, as frustrating as I found the previous chapters, it made it was all made worthwhile when Marcella showed up at the funeral and told everyone to go F themselves. I cheered and was so happy until I realized it's been 400 years and the creepy misogyny that was previously displayed still exists. There was just this sense of sexual entitlement that always upsets me and makes me feel really uncomfortable. I always shut down when I come across it, as I did here. That guy was definitely one of those creepy incels. (laughs) It bothers me when you have male characters who have that sense of of sexual entitlement, as he puts it. I think that's a great way – that's a great phrase for it. And there's no consequences. It's seen as like expected, you know, like like they they get what they want because we're being told we are entitled for it, you know. And and I I hate those those characters are types of characters I don't like. And when they do get their comeuppance, I also I also cheer because I don't like toxic masculinity. What about you? Well, who does like toxic masculinity? <laughs> but I'm just thinking, you know, to play de- devils. Go on Twitter. <laughs> but just to play devil's advocate, how how would it be any other way at that time period? You, I think that's what he's saying too. Okay. I think that's where he's saying the age of not of the novels to be remembered. In other words, like you, you, he says even he he even says I. It's been 400 years. Like you know, sure. You have to keep that in mind to a certain extent. Um, but it, but it, it's still it, you can still allow it to frustrate you. Gotcha. In my mind, anyway. So getting back into his email, he says, uh, "I think that'll be it for this month." He just finished the Handmaid's Tale. Um, he's about wow. to start. It can't happen here. Wow, Robert, you're going for some seriously <laughs> cheery stuff. I've not um, read the second one. It is. Oh, who is the author? The author is somebody I know. Um, you know them personally? No. Uh, I know of them. Oh, okay. I, I, in other words, I know who the author is. Um, I'd heard of him. Uh, Here, I thought you were somebody. No, I am nobody. <laughs> Sinclair Lewis. It's by Sinclair oh, Lewis. Oh, interesting. It is essentially a novel where it's basically like fascism taking over the United States. It was written during the rise of Nazi Germany in the 30s. Lovely. It's it's essentially dystopian literature, as, as is The Handmaid's Tale. So. Yes. He is says uh, Robert does say he is anxiously, anxiously looking toward looking to reading about uh, Ichabod Crane. P.S. 
Tom, who can totally fry your brain and try to live as an unpowered superhero. Arch nemesis, uh, the California Raisins. In fact, that is the entire premise of the Flaming Carrot. Quote, the Flaming Carrot origin states that having read 5,000 comics in a single sitting to win a bet, the poor man suffered brain damage and appeared directly thereafter as the Flaming Carrot. No one is surprised by Stella living out a gothic romance fantasy, though. I think that was the... Yeah. Uh, now it's time for Stella to come up with humorous, if not mocking, superhero names for superhero Tom. No, sorry. Uh, Robert also sent us another email <laughs> with his pan monthly pan. question. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so Robert does have a question for us. Okay, Robert. While reading Don Quixote, oh. I discovered some wonderful illustrations. My favorite was by Gustave Dore, or Dore, D-O-R-E. From the 1860s, seeing all this great artwork made me realize that sometimes I miss illustrations. Do you miss the inclusion of illustrations in some novels? There were so many illustrations from Dore. Do you think adding a bunch and making the book even longer would add to or to or make things worse? Uh, with Tom reading as an ebook, should more use of illustrations be avoided because of the digital means of reading? I will say with a caveat. As far as ebooks go, they've gotten better over the years. You ever read a nonfiction book that has like a photo section right in the middle of it? Yes. All right. I'll, with some of the older ebooks that I have, they throw that photo section like at the end. And like, so they've been better formatted in recent years, but there was a point where like, you know, you get all these pages of, of and there's like end notes and everything. So they're, they're not formatted as well. And so that's what it does get frustrating. But as for actually, like, how I feel about illustrations, I actually, I think it would have been pretty cool to see some illustrations in, in Don Quixote to kind of break it up. I mean, one of the things I, uh, I read at Tell Two Cities a couple of times, I do remember the illustrations in that. There are some books where I do kind of wish uh, that there were some illustrations here and there. I do, uh, especially older ones, I think it would be, like, really cool to see some of them. I think they were in A Christmas Story. Not A Christmas Story. A Christmas Carol. And, uh, yeah, so I, I like, I like illustrations. Some books I don't think absolutely need them. I don't think atonement needed any, even though an illustration was part of the central thing in the plot. Cause didn't he write the letter on the picture from, of the yes. female reproductive system? The hoo-ha, if you will. <sighs> we have to do this again. This is the running, isn't it? The vagina. Yes. Is this a yes. running gag? I, I apparently, because we've, we've, We've had this, like, me explaining the actual technical oh, scientific term for genitalia <laughs> three or four times. Um, but, yeah. The adult the, of the two of us, though. <laughs> um, we're doomed. But I think I think some novels, would, it, you know, I think it depends on the book. But, yeah, I, I do. I do like, I always like silly. But then again, I'm a comic book reader. So illustrations and stuff like that are always fun. Yeah, what, are, what were those called? So Charles Dickens... I remember David Copperfield had those. I can't remember what they're called. Staves were the names of the chapters in A Christmas Carol. I've heard the word plate. Yeah, but yeah, I think that's, that's part of the printing process. Okay, yeah. Yeah, well, I think so. But yeah, I think it depends on the novel. I I don't know if it necessarily works 
with modern novels? I'd have to think. I'm sure they're... Uh, well, I guess it depends. Yeah, because, so, for example, let's see here. Uh, YA novel known as da, 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 Everything Everything. There's a lot of, like, text-based images, like Google mm. emails and things like that, because it's plot-based, or her drawing yeah. something. And then also a central plot point in... Uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. In the nighttime, because yeah. of the the kid being autistic. There's a lot of that, so I think little pieces of drawings, if they help further the plot, I think those work really well. But I just feel like the full plates or full pages of something really just give me a sense of of vintage and and old fashioned novels or classics, classic. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I agree. Well, that's it. Remember, you can mm-hmm. email us at requireddreadingcast at gmail.com or post on the Facebook group. Tom does a good job of moderating there. Yeah, Someone I tried said something to... inflammatory, though, I remember. You, like, applauded them, and I gave an angry, angry smiley face, but I can't remember what it was. Uh, it'll probably make its way into next episode because um, we tend to we tend to have a cutoff for what we put the feedback into each episode. So gotcha. uh, comments on Sleepy Hollow will be in next, uh, next, next month's. Time. Okay. So, so, Tom, what are we reading next time? Ah, uh, yeah. So, uh, next episode will come out in December. So, I have chosen once again um, something that takes place in December. It specifically, takes place over three nights on Christmas Eve, Christmas night, and the night following Christmas. Um, it is a play, and it is one. It is considered one of the. Um, kind of like one of the first really modern plays or at least on some level is a good example of a modernist play it is a play i have mentioned several times over the 24 episodes of this series surprisingly not today uh yet but we are going to be reading um henrik ibsen's domestic three-act drama a doll's house I refuse to read it out of, um, I'm just putting my foot down. You've mentioned it too much. I'm not going to read it. Oh, you'll be fine. (laughs) Okay, well, I'd like to say I'm looking forward to that, but given how many times Thomas has referenced it, I don't know. Well, we go from uptight, rich British people to uptight, upper-middle-class Norwegians. So we're in the, yeah. yeah, I've always wanted to read a Norwegian novel or play. Yeah. Yeah, so um, there's no specific um, translation that you have to grab okay, or anything. So you don't have to worry about that. You can just go ahead and – and you can all do this. There's um, – to my knowledge, I've read a couple of versions of it. It's not the, – there, there doesn't seem to be much difference in translation. So whatever you are able to get your hands on, feel free to use. Okay. Well, I guess that's it for this episode. Yep, that's it. <laughs> um, you can you can check us out. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter. Uh, we are at Rec Reading Cast. That is R E Q Reading Cast. I am trying to make a goal of, or we both are trying to make a goal of posting more content to the blog, which is at Required Reading at uh, with Tom and Stella dot com. We're not as successful as that as we were both teachers, and we were in the middle of just oh, the. rush of the end of a quarter but we will try to get there at some point or another but until next month when we take a look at the helmers and their domestic uh, bliss as it is uh, thank you very much for listening and take care
And if you see someone squished up against the bookcase, be sure to ask what's happening before making an assumption. It's good advice. Good night. Goodbye. I had for a very long time decided to tell the absolute truth. No rhymes, no embellishments. And I think... You've read the book, you'll understand why. I got first-hand accounts of all the events I didn't personally witness. The conditions in prison, the evacuation to Dunkirk, everything. But the effect of all this honesty was rather pitiless, you see. I couldn't any longer imagine what purpose would be served by it. By what, sorry, served by honesty? By honesty. Or reality. Because, in fact, I was too much of a coward to go and see my sister in June 1940. I never made that journey to Bali. So the scene in which I confess to them is imagined, invented. And if that could never have happened, because Robbie Turner died of septicemia at Bray Dunes on June the 1st, 1940, the last day of the evacuation. Cheerio, pal. right with my sister Cecilia because she was killed on the 15th of October 1940 by the bomb that destroyed the gas and water mains above Ballam tube station. My sister and Robbie were never able to have the time together. They both so longed for and deserved. And which ever since I've... Ever since I've always felt I prevented. But sense of hope or satisfaction could a reader derive from an ending like that so in the book 
I wanted to give Robbie and Cecilia what they lost out on in life. I'd like to think this isn't weakness or evasion, but a final act of kindness. I gave them their happiness. for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.